I am woman, hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore. And I know too much to go back and pretend, cause I've heard it all before, and I've been down on the floor. No one's ever gonna keep me down again, sings Helen Reddy. We here at Solutions of Balance and our guest today, Farrah Alexander, totally agree with Helen Reddy. It is time that those of us of the male persuasion recognize strength, power, and intellect women bring to the table. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 FM, and you're listening to Solutions of Balance, a program sponsored by WFMP Radio. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Following as part of the WFMP's public affairs educational programming, the views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's Solutions of Balance guest is Farrah Alexander. Farrah Alexander, welcome to Solutions of Balance. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you, Farah. Farah Alexander is a writer, author, activist. Through activism and the notable wins and losses of the past several years, she became inspired by attorneys who so often were thrown into first responder roles, defending the rights of those in need. Believing law is an effective and direct way to enact positive change, she began pursuing her JD at Indiana University McKinney School of Law. In her first year, she won the Indianapolis Bar Association's inaugural writing competition with an essay proposing a three-point legislative plan to combat the state's maternal mortality rate. She also served as a student representative of the Jewish Faculty and Staff Council, a research assistant on the Law and Antisemitism Conference, and became a founding member of the university's Jewish Law Student Association. Her debut book, Raising the Resistance, A Mother's Guide to Practical Activism, was published by Mango Media in 2020. Her latest book, Resistance in the Bluegrass. Alexander, would you share a little more about yourself with us? You live just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, with your husband, son, and daughter. You love to visit state and national parks with family, mentally in love with reality TV. What are some important factors and experiences in your life that have brought you to the place, the time, in your profession at this point in time? Oh, wow. Well, it has definitely been a journey. I have been a writer for pretty much as long as I can remember. Since I was a child, I wrote a review for Tickle Me Elmo. I've written forever. It's just something that's in me. And I've always really enjoyed to write. And so after the birth of my second child, I felt it was important to discuss more about what was happening around us and how that affects raising the next generation. And so I wrote more opinion editorials that, that were politically charged. And I've always wanted to write a book. And so that was something that I pursued. And um, also, as I got more involved in activism, I did see the law being used as, in my opinion, an effective way to make change. And so I decided to be a part of that change. And so I started law school last year, and I am excited to update that I will be transferring to the University of Louisville Brain High School of Law. And so I'll be in Kentucky doing that too. So yeah, that has kind of been my journey. I just have felt a calling to make some positive change and have followed the most effective way to do that so far. So you're motivated by, quote, bending the arc of justice just a little further every day. What does bending the arc of justice mean to you? Well, now, of course, the reference to bending the arc of justice, that was something that Barack Obama said quite a bit that originated with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in my opinion, I 
think that it's just the progression towards a more just world. And whenever you make some progress towards the change you wish to see, that's bending the arc of justice a little bit further. It's not something that can happen overnight. It's an ongoing process. But I think that whenever positive change happens, that's bending the arc of justice a little bit further. You've served as the Jeremiah Fellow with Bending the Arc, uh, a Jewish partnership for justice. As a member of the Jewish Community Relations Council, Noble, you also recipient of the Julia Linker Community Relations Young Leadership Award, and that was in July of this year, 2022. Tell us about this organizations and your leadership award and why these are part of your interest. Sure. So one thing that I found kind of interesting as I was writing Resistance in the Bluegrass, I interviewed a lot of different activists. And one chapter is about religion and religious activism. And I noticed even when I interviewed people who I was not interviewing specifically for religious purposes, I had no idea what religion they prescribed to anything. Religion came up a lot. A lot of people said, you know, I do this work because that's what Christianity calls me to do. And it was just constant. And I also feel that. I feel that as a Jewish person, I am called to make positive social change. And that's a big part of me and what I do. And so a couple of years ago, I was part of a group, Ben the Ark, in Louisville with some young progressive Jews. And that was a really wonderful experience. It was nice to organize with fellow Jews. I met lots of great people. And I felt like it was important to show up in a Jewish way a lot of times and show people who needed support that their Jewish community supported them. For example, when we formed this group, we went to a very small memorial service in front of Breonna Taylor's apartment complex. There weren't many people there. It was on Memorial Day of 2020. And then later that day, George Floyd was killed. And after that, you know, all eyes of the nation and the larger part of the world was on Louisville. And I just thought it was important to show people who were most affected in the community that there was a group of Jewish people who live right here, who care for them. And that's what our faith teaches us to do. And as far as the Linker Award, I was very honored to get that. I'm a part of the Jewish Community Relations Council here in Louisville. And that's been a wonderful experience too, just organizing in the community and trying to to make positive change. And yeah, it's been really good. And so that's really why it's been part of my interest is because uh, I'm a Jew. That's a huge part of who I am and what I do. You're a writer now and you focus on feminism. And, and we're going to talk about that a little later, but you also focus on parenting, social justice, politics, and current events. Your work has been featured in the Huffington Post, Bust, and Scary Mama. Commentaries on your work is in Scientific American, BuzzFeed, Refinery29, Yahoo, and about 11 or 12 more. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to list all those, but it's amazing. So I expect you will get to each of those or some of those areas, but what is it about feminism that speaks to you and, and how does that 
tie into parenting? Hmm, sure. Well, um, I think it ties in in several different ways. One, I think that becoming a mother is a very wonderful and strange experience that sometimes it can be difficult to either hold true to your identity or forge a new identity. And that was one thing that interested me in writing my first book. When it came to books for mothers, I saw a lot of books about potty training and um, pregnancy, but not a lot of books about who you are as a person or like um, any kind of social change. And I felt like that was kind of lacking. And I think it's important to note that just because you're a mother doesn't mean that you're not many other things that make you you. And so I think that's just important. And also, I think it's important when you raise your children to promote equity and teach your children that they're equal and women should be respected and everyone should be respected. And I have a son, I have a daughter, and I believe I want to be raising them the same way that they're both capable of doing whatever they want to do and they're going to be supported in whatever they want to do. And I just think that's important in parenting. Yeah. Sarah Alexander, let's explore your focus on feminism a little further. Just a few years ago, the quote, hashtag Me Too movement was a big deal nationwide. The Me Too movement is a social movement that opposes sexual abuse, sexual harassment, rape culture, and it encourages people to publicize their experiences of sexual abuse or sexual harassment. In a patriarchal society, the Me Too movement has redefined sexual advances that were once acceptable, although not ethical, but are no longer acceptable. Elisa Rosenberg of the Washington Post called for the society to be careful of overreaching by, quote, being clear about what behavior is criminal, what behavior is legal by, intolerable in a workplace, and what private intimate behavior is worthy of condemnation, but not part of the workplace discussion. So that came from Rosenberg, January 17, 2018. Opinion, the Me Too movement is a dangerous tipping point, end quote, in the Washington Post. So uh, the Washington Post also, in August 2021, the Washington Post stated in a response to the Me Too movement, 19 states have enacted new sexual harassment protections for victims and more than 200 bills were introduced in state legislature to deter harassment. So has the Me Too movement changed the culture in the workplace or are women in particular still at a, a disadvantageous position because of their gender? What else needs to happen in order to assure that women are not disadvantaged because of their gender? So I know this is a big question. Just give me what you think is what you see as progress here. Sure, it is a big question. So yeah, I think the Me Too movement has been really powerful in just showing people how widespread some of the issues that women face are and how, you know, a lot of people may not think they know someone who has been sexually assaulted or abused, but they most likely do. And I think that really illuminated that issue for a lot of people, which I thought was really powerful. Um, now, with that, I mean, we have made a lot of progress over the years, but there's still like many 
many areas, a lot of progress still to go. And unfortunately, yeah, I think that women are still disadvantaged because of their gender. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing that in um, laws being passed across the country right now. You know, for example, we have laws that are banning abortion and the criminal penalties for abortion in many cases are more harsh than the penalties for rape or sexual assault or domestic abuse. And unfortunately, I think that sends a message to women that they're not as valued. And that's really painful. It's a really difficult situation. And I think that women need representation at all levels when it comes to the workplace. Women need representation in, for example, say senior management or some at the high levels of employment in whatever area they're employed and in government. I think that more women should be represented in government. In Kentucky, the General Assembly is not reflective of the people of Kentucky. And I think that needs to change. I think that we need to have more diversity. And I think if we had more diversity and our representation reflected more of the people, then we would have better results and more fair results. Those are really good examples, but can you give us an idea of how those things might happen? How Well, I mean, I think, for example, more women need to run for political office and more voters need to support those women running for political office and vote for women. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I think that sounds absurd, frankly, but that's a problem that we have. A lot of um, voters will not support a woman candidate. And so women are often at a disadvantage. They face problems that um, a lot of men candidates don't. They're often, you know, their emotions are criticized or they, um, it's a lot of questions about their family and whether they're capable of taking on the job. And I think we just need to support these candidates who would be good leaders and would be good people to represent us and make sure that they have the avenues to do that. Representative Attica Scott was interviewed in my book. She also wrote the foreword and has been really wonderful. And that's something that she has been a big advocate for is that, you know, she says, I'm just warming the seat for you. Like if, you know, I want more people to run for office. She shares some of the ways she was able to run for office, some of the programs that are available in Kentucky. And so I would really encourage more people to run and for us to support them. Yeah, let's get into that a little further, uh, political mm -hmm. leadership here. But the research does show that women, the women's gender has made some progress here in the U.S. nationwide. An article published by the Pew Research Center and penned by Terry Blazina and Drew DeSilver, quote, a record number of women are serving in the 117th Congress, end quote, states, quote, counting both the House of Representatives and the Senate, 144 of the 539 seats, about 27 percent, are held by women. That represents a 50 percent increase from the 96 women who were serving in the 112th Congress just a decade ago though it remains far below the female share of overall U.S. population, end quote. Even though 
An article published by the Brookings Institute pens by Jennifer Lawless and Richard L. Fox, February 8, 2022, called Running for Office is Still for Men, Some Data on the Ambition Gap, end quote, states, quote, women and politics aren't just running for Congress in 2022. They are everywhere across the political spectrum, end quote. However, the same article, as you pointed out, finds that a 2011 citizen political ambitious poll demonstrates that the gender gap was 16 points in terms of men versus women running for political office. The Citizens Political Ambition study looked at 4,000 potential candidates and discovered that 59% of those running for office were men and 43% were women. That differential has not changed since 2001. The Citizens Political Ambition study begs the question, are women making progress in terms of their quest for leadership positions in Kentucky and the U.S.? Well, I think we have definitely made progress. Unfortunately, I don't think it is enough. And I think that the disparity is felt um, more harshly in some places than others. So yeah, when you take a look at the national scale, I think you it does reflect some positive change and progress. And we have had more diversity in Congress over the past several, several years. And I think that has been incredibly positive. But unfortunately, some areas are not experiencing that progress. And one of those areas is Kentucky, unfortunately. So, you know, the General Assembly is predominantly white and male and older. And I think, let's see, has like 80% of Kentucky state legislators are white and still a pretty small minority are women, which is, um, I think, really shocking and unfortunate. Um, I think it's, let's see, 27% of the Kentucky House of Representatives are women and only 11% in the Kentucky Senate are women. It's a pretty small minority. And I think that we can do better than that, frankly. And I think that if we do have more diversity in the General Assembly and again, it just the General Assembly reflects the population they're elected to serve, then you're going to have better results for the people they're elected to serve. And I think that the way things should be. Well, let's move to your first book, Raising the Resistance, A Mother's Guide to Practical Activism. And that's your debut book. Tell us about the first one and what prompted you to write it? What responses have you had? Sure. So my first book, I touched on earlier that I wrote quite a few like politically charged opinion editorials. And a lot of those also tied into my role as a parent. And I noticed that a lot of people resonated with some of those messages. And I also noticed after the election of 2016, it seemed that there was a huge number of people who were really outraged by some of the things that were happening and wanted to do something about it, but weren't really sure what to do. And so I wrote the book in part for those people who needed some guidance and also people who have been involved in activism, but uh, wanted to deepen their involvement. And so I kind of just wrote the book for mothers who were interested in making some type of positive political or social change and looking for ways to do that. And so it's been 
really interesting to hear some of the response to that. You know, that book, unlike the new book, Resistance in the Bluegrass, which is written about people in Kentucky and um, the culture of Kentucky and whatnot. And my first book was really written with mothers in mind, just about the mothers, um, the intersection of motherhood and political activism. And so I have had a lot of responses from overseas, which has been interesting. It's been translated to Korean and has been pretty popular like in the UK and different areas. And so that's interesting to me. And I think a lot of people, the messaging just kind of resonates with them. And I don't think there was, there have been enough books targeted towards mothers that go a little bit deeper into who mothers are and some of the positive things they want to do. Well, you've also been an advocate for gun reform. You previously served on the board of Whitney Strong, a um, nonprofit founded by the mass shooting survivor Whitney Austin. You are now a member of the Everytown Authors Council, which was designed to harness the power of the literary community to amplify the gun safety movement. And you've recently published a, a regional project for the University of Kentucky Press and that you referred to earlier as Resistance in the Bluegrass. This in fact is your most recent book and published this year in 2022. Give us a sense of what Resistance in the Bluegrass covers and, and where you take the, the readers. Oh, wow. Well, quite a few um, different places. So, you know, in Kentucky, there has been a lot of progressive change happening and in many, many different areas. And so any one of these chapters, I probably could have written a book on, for example, the first chapter is poverty. I definitely could have written an entire book and more so on poverty in Kentucky and some of the activism around poverty. So I just in each chapter focused on a different area of positive change I've seen happen in Kentucky in recent years. So areas of immigration and LGBTQ rights, um, a lot of positive change has happened right out of Kentucky, in Kentucky um, in bringing marriage equality to the entire United States. And so yeah, I just kind of wanted to highlight some of these stories in Kentucky because there's so many incredible people in Kentucky who have made incredible progress and really done amazing things. Okay, let's let's explore this idea of gun safety a little further. The culture of Kentucky here in Louisville, the deaths as a result of gun violence has now reached triple digits. So Congress, U.S. Congress, just passed, and Joe Biden signed into law the Safer Communities Act gun safety bill. The Safer Communities Act law, now law, expands an existing law that prevents people convicted of domestic abuse from owning a gun to include dating partners rather than just spouses and former spouses. It also expands background checks on people between the ages of 18 and 21 seeking to buy a gun. It does not prevent the sale of military-style rifles or guns with high-capacity magazines. It also does not close the gun sales loophole. You can still purchase guns at a gun show without a background check. An article published by Gilbert Law Firm titled, quote, A Devastating Toll 2021 CDC Data Shows Record Number of Gun Deaths makes clear the need for continued action to address gun violence in America, end quote. That article documents that almost 49,000 people 
died from gun violence in the U.S. in 2021, up from 35,000 in 2020. An article titled, quote, there have been over 300 mass shootings so far in 2022 and penned by Julie Lador, Kate Bethewitz, and Arthur Galucka, July 5th, 2022, demonstrates that mass shootings increase every year. These mass shootings now include elementary schools and churches from Sandy Hook to Buffalo and now Uvalde, Texas. Is the Safer Gun Act now law enough to significantly curb the gun violence we're seeing in our country? Or do we need tighter gun safety laws still? What additional gun safety laws would you support? Oh, yeah. So you've really illustrated some of the gravity of the problem that we have in the United States. I mean, gun violence is a huge issue. And that's one reason that I care so much about it. It's something that has the potential to affect all Americans. Most Americans have probably personally been affected by gun violence in some way. And so as far as the Safer Communities Act, if it's enough, basically. So no, I don't think it's enough. I think it's wonderful. I think it's tremendous progress that I personally celebrate. I think there's a lot of evidence-based solutions in the law that will absolutely save lives. And it is much further progress than we have experienced in a very long time. I would personally like to see more progress happen, including some of the things you mentioned. I personally would support a ban on military-style rifles or guns with high-capacity magazines. And I also support most of the solutions proposed by Everytown. They've done a tremendous amount of research on evidence-based solutions. And so when it comes to answering the questions, what can we do? What policy changes can we make to save lives? They have the answers, basically. And they have an entire platform of some of the policy changes that we can make and some of the laws that we can pass. And I think when you think about gun violence and consider ways to combat it, reduce harm, and ultimately save lives, it's important to look at the entire scope of gun violence and how it affects people. So mass shootings are an incredible tragedy that is in many ways uniquely American. And it's also not the most common manner of how gun violence kills people. And all things considered, when you manage your own risk assessment of your probability of being in a mass shooting, it's still relatively rare. But there are many, many other ways that people are harmed by gun violence. Suicide is, I believe, the most common way that people li- people's lives are taken. So when you consider how to save lives from gun violence, I think you need to consider all the ways that lives are taken, including ways we could reduce suicide. So extreme risk protection laws are something that I definitely support. And that's one thing that I think is very positive from the new law, that it would encourage states to pass those laws if they don't have them already. That can prevent many different kinds of gun violence, including suicide. And yeah, I think that 
in general, guns should be more regulated. <laughs> I think it's important to close some of these loopholes and increase background checks and waiting periods and all of these things, I believe to be positive change that does not infringe on anyone's Second Amendment rights. So I, I personally would like to see some of those changes happen, and I'm going to continue to fight for some of those changes, and an increasing number of Americans are feeling the same way. And so I'm very energized by that change as well. With all of this gun violence now occurring here <laughs> yeah. in, this, in this country, mm -hmm. I think we have to give people, children in particular, a way to deal with it, because if, even if people are not involved, they see it on TV almost every night. Mm -hmm. So. On a recent Facebook, let's change directions a little bit here. On a recent Facebook, sure. May 25, you said this, quote, I made space for this meditation in an effort to find peace amidst tragedy. Sharing for those of you looking for peace today, too. You then posted this link, quote, a meditation for processing tragedy, end quote, that can be found on YouTube.com. Another link you listed is, quote, helping children with tragic events in the news, end quote. Parent tips on emotion and self-awareness, social skills and character. And this documented by PBS.org. Why did you make this post? What is it about this meditation and parent tips that mm -hmm. caused you to want to share them with your followers, Facebook followers? Sure. So meditation is something that I incorporated into my own mental health wellness routine a couple of years ago, and I have found it incredibly beneficial. And also, it's not something that I am necessarily skilled at. <laughs> I think it's something that is really accessible and can be easy to do. I personally like um, guided meditation, and I'm a big fan of the Headspace app, which is very, very accessible for just about anyone. And so I've just seen a lot of benefits from that. And I also have seen more meditations geared towards topical issues, which I think um, there definitely is a need for and can be incredibly helpful. So, you know, over the past couple of years of these unprecedented times, you know, it's kind of like we've been trudging through collective trauma. And I think that it's important to occasionally sit back and recognize that and take care of yourself. And I've noticed that meditation can be a good space for that. I've seen specific meditations for racial injustice. And I thought that that was really powerful. You know, some of these huge tragedies that we see on the news can be so disheartening for everyone. It's just unimaginable loss. And sometimes you don't have the words to console anyone or make anything better. But I've found that meditation can help people at least a little bit just find peace in the moment. And I, I find that helpful. So if anyone else finds that helpful, then that's great. And sometimes I do uh. share other things that I find on um, emotional intelligence for children. PBS has been a really good resource for things like that. You know, ever since Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers has been wonderful and an incredibly emotionally intelligent person. And I think that PBS has consistently been a good resource for things like that. My husband is a vet and he 
is now a clinical social worker who treats vets. And I noticed that the PBS actually sends basically like these toolkits with like a book and a video and things for children who are dealing with loss, specifically military families. So I feel like PBS has so many resources for very specific traumatic experiences that I think are really helpful. And so again, I just thought if it would help anyone, it's worth sharing. Let's move to something that's a really uh, important issue for for so many now. You say you believe in the right to abortion, and uh, you don't need to hear a tragic story to justify the need for abortion. If someone says they need an abortion, you say you trust their decision, you acknowledge that it's none of your business. Um, you say none of my damn business is the way you put it. <laughs> you phrased it. Uh, right. You, You've never had an abortion, but uh, personal experiences greatly impacted your defense of the, the right to abortion. You say you learned firsthand that childbirth can be very dangerous, and when you ban abortion, it becomes even more dangerous. Give us a bit more about your experience and how you came to the position on abortion and, and how you reached that decision. Sure. So, I mean... Yeah, abortion is a very, very tricky issue because like a lot of political issues, people bring their personal experiences and emotions into it, which I think is very natural because it can be a very personal decision as it should be. And, you know, I said that it's none of my damn business because I believe in the legal right to privacy. That was the whole constitutional basis for Roe v. Wade, whether my personal experience has led me to a clinic's doors should have no bearing on someone else's choice. I don't think that I should have a role in that person's decision. And in fact, most Americans do support abortion rights. So, but I do think about my personal experience because I after I had very difficult pregnancies and difficult childbirth. And so after my second child, I almost died, which was really terrible and not fun. Wouldn't recommend it. And um, so I recovered, fortunately, and I had a blood transfusion and I was okay. But after that, I thought, how did this happen? You know, I feel like... Um, maternal mortality is not an issue that we really should have anymore with all the advancements in modern medicine and whatnot. And so I, because I'm a former journalist, I'm a very curious person and I tend to research things. And so that's what I looked into. How did I almost die after childbirth? How does this happen? How does this happen to women? And so what I found was that there was nothing unique or unusual really about my experience. I had experienced a postpartum hemorrhage that is a very common cause of maternal mortality. I live just outside of Louisville, Kentucky in Indiana and the maternal mortality rate in Indiana is very, very high. It's um, comparable to Iraq and the Gaza Strip, for example. 
And I also looked at um, the rate over the years and it is very high, but it has increased. And the point that it increased was when then Lieutenant Governor Mike Pence went on a huge defund Planned Parenthood mission. And they effectively did. And a lot of women in rural areas lost care. And, um, you know, they, a lot of women died. And that's something that happens. You know, abortion is health care. It is a part of reproductive health care. And when you effectively ban abortion, that affects many other different areas. And the people who are most affected are Black, Indigenous, people of color, people in rural areas, people who are poor, people who have few resources. And it's just terrible. And so that's just a perspective that I think is also important to discuss because when you ban abortion and are forcing people to give birth, that is not a, a safe, harmless thing that happens. You know, um, when we have these high maternal mortality rates, they're are people who are going to die as a result of that. And as uh, care is limited, more people are going to die as well. So it's just incredibly, incredibly unfortunate. And I think it, you know, just like when you look at gun violence, it's important to look at the entire scope of the issue. There are some decisions now that abortion rights advocates have got to face as a response to mm -hmm. the Supreme Court 22 uh, Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. What actions would you suggest for abortion rights activists what, that they should take now? What are some practical things that they need to be doing? Well, unfortunately, it's very difficult in many different areas. For example, in Kentucky, it has been an incredibly difficult and fluid situation. Kentucky had a trigger law. So what that means was as soon as the Dobbs v. Jackson decision came out, which effectively reversed Roe v. Wade, Kentucky's trigger law went into effect, which effectively banned abortions immediately. And there have been lawsuits establishing, well, arguing a um, Kentucky constitutional right to abortion. And so we have seen throughout the courts, um, as that is argued, abortion has been legal and then illegal and legal and illegal. And so I think if people want to support that fight, um, there's different organizations that you should support that have been doing the work. So in Kentucky, for example, and I talked about these organizations in the book as well, Kentucky Health Justice Network has been working for a very long time on abortion rights and um, funding services, providing health care, and they know what they're doing, which I think is very important because we really are in uncharted territory and it's not a good time for anyone to reinvent the wheel or put themselves in some type of criminal liability because we, we just really don't know what criminal liability is out there, I think. And also the ACLU of Kentucky has been absolutely incredible in making the legal fight that has so far brought 
abortions to Kentucky that has restored the right to abortion in Kentucky. So I think that those organizations need support right now. They need your donations. And um, I would encourage people to also just follow those organizations for ongoing needs and news. Tell, tell us the name of those organizations again, Vera. Sure. So the ACLU of Kentucky is one organization and they have been really incredible in the legal fight for abortion rights in Kentucky and um, also the Kentucky Health Justice Network. If abortions become illegal in Kentucky, well, that means that in order to abort an unwanted or troubled pregnancy, the lady's going to have to travel to another state. What other states do not have trigger laws where uh, women travel to, to to abort their child? Well, that is, again, a fluid situation. So I can't tell you um, many states that could change overnight, but um, people can go to abortionfinder.org and find up-to-date information. If abortion is declared illegal, will Planned Parenthood clinics which provide mental as well as physical health care to pregnant women as well as abortions, will they go out of business? What will happen in your estimation with the Planned Parenthood clinics? Well, I certainly hope not because Planned Parenthood and so many of these clinics do incredible work that patients desperately need. But yeah, they're likely going to be negatively affected. And some clinics likely will close. And, um, you know, that's some of the things that cause issues like maternal mortality. It causes higher rates of cervical cancer, higher rates of breast cancer, because people are just not getting the care that they need. But yeah, unfortunately, I do think that we're going to see some negative impacts of access to care. There's some concern about the U.S. Supreme Court not only planning to end the federal support for abortion rights, but is also planning to end federal support for contraception, medication and, and devices, uh, access to contraceptives. Devices was the heart of the women's movement, and because those devices provide a path that, that allow women to acquire education and begin a career outside the home. Contraception provided a method that allowed women to choose the time when they wanted to begin a pregnancy. Are you concerned that the conservative members of the Supreme Court, with support from conservative lawmakers, will end access to contraception? What will ending that access con of contraception mean for, you know, for American women, what, for all of us, really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm certainly concerned. I think that there has been a trend. Again, I'm not an attorney, and this is legal advice. Uh, I am a law student, and so I stay abreast of some legal issues. And, you know, just looking at some of the Supreme Court decisions that have come out lately, they are insane. And there's a lot of strange decisions, decisions that are not based in a lot of legal precedent or things are overturned. They're not, yeah, they just don't really make any sense. So is it possible that contraception is, we don't have access to contraception because there's no longer apparently a right to privacy? Yeah, I'm sure that is a risk. And I think that um, much like the bans on abortion, that will lead to 
patients being faced with very difficult and unsafe decisions. So much like when abortion is banned, patients go on to still have abortions, but they no longer have safe and legal abortions. And um, many of those abortions are performed with medication. They're not performed in a clinic anyway. And unfortunately, over time, patients are likely to receive unsafe medication that is not regulated, that is not prescribed by a doctor as it is when abortions are legal. And so if contraception was also outlawed, which is a very strange and scary thought, I'm afraid that a similar thing would happen. People would be desperate to obtain contraception and they would go to unsafe methods and receive unreliable and potentially dangerous medication and things like that. That would be really terrible. So that's certainly a risk. Let's change directions here, Vera. You highly recommend a program called Appalachian Prison Book Project, which mm-hmm. is about donating used books to one's closest prison book program. You do not live in Appalachia, but reference mm-hmm. it as a source for this program. You also recommended a list of national books to prison organizations where we can find a prison near us to ask them what books they they most need. And you've got a, a hashtag here, HTTPS, prisons, prisonbookprogram.org slash prisonbooknetwork. So why is it so important to you about the Appalachian Prison Book Project and why do you recommend it? I honestly just think it's a good program. I think that there's definitely a need for book in prisons. Uh, Prison is not a good opportunity to do many things, but it is certainly a good opportunity to read and learn. And perhaps books provide a little bit of peace in that situation. The Appalachian Prison Book Project is a favorite of mine just because I think that in Appalachia, there are so many people in prison and um, there's a definite need when it comes to providing any type of aid or donations. You know, there's so many causes and organizations that people often turn to. And I think that helping the prison population is often not one of those causes. And so I think they need a little bit more attention. And the Appalachian Prison Book Project in particular is incredibly easy to support. They often post specific needs. For example, say Ronald is looking for a book on uh, plants. And so you can actually just comment on their Facebook page and say, I'm going to send Ronald that book. And then you can get on Amazon and send it directly to them. And you don't have to do hardly anything. It takes all of 30 seconds. And now Ronald has that book on plants that he wants. So I just think it's a very easy and accessible organization to support that needs support. And you can make a direct change. We mentioned uh, we would like to to look into some of the additional topics listed in your mm-hmm. new book, Resistance uh, in the Bluegrass. The contents of that book list the following chapters, uh, poverty, environment, religion, education, political representation, racial justice, LGBTQ rights, uh, immigration, feminism, and reproduction. 
Then there are some suggested readings. We'll ask you to mention those at the end of our program. But let's begin with poverty. What is it about poverty in, in Kentucky that caught your attention? And, and why, uh, why, why poverty? We consider poverty a form of violence. What answers mm -hmm. do you recommend as solutions to the violence brought by poverty? Right. Well, I think poverty is relatable to many people in this area. And in Kentucky specifically, what caught my attention is that some of the poorest counties in the entire United States are in Kentucky. And so there are several different areas in Kentucky that are extremely affected by poverty. People live in extreme poverty where they don't have access to very basic needs like food and shelter. And it's a really terrible problem that we have in Kentucky. And unfortunately, as we have seen recently, some of Eastern Kentucky has been affected yet again by devastating floods. And so I think it's also important to just talk about how some of these people are facing tremendous poverty and they're in, sometimes losing what little they have. And it's a really heartbreaking situation. One organization that I talked about in the book is um, an Eastern Kentucky mutual aid organization. And I think that's a pretty interesting model. Mutual aid has gained some traction over the years. And it's basically just people helping people. You know, there can be a direct need, like someone needs food now for their families and someone in their community can meet that need and then there's not um, a lot of oversight or red tape or any kind of transaction occurring or requirement it's just people helping people in the community and um you know in eastern kentucky specifically that organization has made a lot of positive change in people's lives and in response to the flooding, for example, they have been extremely hard at work getting some of these resources that people need to the people that need them. And so I think supporting some of those network is an important and possible solution to the violence brought on by poverty. Also, I had one conversation towards the front of the book, I think, with Taylor Ryan, who runs a nonprofit called Change Today, Change Tomorrow in Louisville. And she also supports basically mutual aid kind of model and doesn't have a lot of red tape when it comes to getting people the resources that they need. And I talked to her about poverty and she talked about joy and I wanted her, her to talk more about that because I think that's something that is left out of the conversation quite a bit. So I think there's a lot of policing of the resources that go to poor people. You know, people, if someone is purchasing food with food stamps, they want to have an opinion about what kind of food they are purchasing. They don't want them to purchase soda or junk food or birthday cake or steak or whatever. And, you know, Taylor just talked a little bit about how there can be joy in poverty and people still have joyous situations in hopeless circumstances. And I felt like that was just something important to discuss and just treat people who live in poverty with empathy and dignity and allow them to have joy. 
Chapters three and four in uh, Resistance to Bluegrass deal with religion and education. We'd like to talk about those a, a lot more, but let's take a, a look at those and uh, what significance they have for all Americans, especially since the Supreme Court ruling on the funding of charter schools and its effects on public schools. What do you see as the violence here in these issues and, and what are some solutions to this conflict? Mm. Um, well, there's many different issues and some of those issues are intersecting lately you know one of the ridiculous supreme court decisions that have come out recently was um, relating to prayer in school and you know in many circumstances that's something that basically mandates christianity and can be very detrimental to any children who aren't christian and that's not what public schools are for and so I think it's important for people to be aware of what is happening in their public schools and speak up when necessary. Another thing is policing in schools. You know, we talked about mass shootings earlier, and obviously that's a terrible problem that we all want to solve. But one way that people propose solving it is by hardening schools. That's what my congressman told me when I approached him several years ago. And typically that means increasing policing in schools. And unfortunately, we don't have any evidence that that has kept kids safer or uh, prevented mass shootings. You know, we saw in Uvalde, Texas, uh, incredibly heartbreaking and frustrating situation with the police response. And unfortunately, also with more police in schools, we see harm done to the Black and Indigenous people of color and students who are in school. And so I think it's important just to look at the harm that is being done and for everyone to be aware of the change that is happening in the schools, because typically parents and members of the community have an opportunity to let their opinions be known. On that topic of education, Vera, the, the Supreme Court, an article published by uh, Chalkbeat, June 21st, 2022, penned by Matt Berman, the quote, the Supreme Court says religious schools can't be singled out for exclusion from public dollars. So that means that funding federal funds could be used to, to support charter schools and religious schools. So the law recently passed uh, by Kentucky here, Kentucky leg state legislators have a much greater impact on the establishment of charter schools than probably the Supreme Court decision because the money will come from state funds. So I suggest, so HB 9 is, is the law that, that has been recently passed by the Kentucky state legislature, sponsored by Chad McCoy and other Republican legislators. That bill is now law and it will provide state funding for charter schools. So a WDRB article penned by Kevin Wheatley, April 7th, 2022, quotes Governor Bashir, quote, I'm against charter schools. Bashir instead said before signing the HB 9 veto. So he vetoed that bill. Then he says they are wrong for our Commonwealth. They are. They take taxpayer dollars away from the already underfunded public schools in the Commonwealth and our taxpayer dollars should not be redirected for profit entities that run charter schools, end quote. So I wonder what your position is on, on charter schools and, uh, and the funding of charter schools here in Kentucky. Do you believe that HB9 will indeed take money away from public schools? What do you think? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with Governor Bashir. I think 
the public schools in Kentucky and many different areas of the United States are incredibly underfunded. And I think anything that threatens the already <laughs> fragile funding of these public schools is a huge problem and I am not inclined to support. So yeah, I agree with Governor Bashir. I do think that tax dollars would be taken away from public schools that desperately need the money to just continue to operate, much less thrive. And I don't think that charter schools need much more help right now. Well, Farah, it's been such a pleasure to have you share your time with us on Solutions to Violence. Since we are nearing the end of our program, would you, for our listeners, share uh, some suggested readings you have for our audience and other sources you'd like to, to mention? You, you mentioned the number already, and we really appreciate that, but are there others? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, Jim and Jamie, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And um, as far as suggested reading, I am going to suggest just uh, several Kentucky authors that really cover all the things we discussed today. So um, Wendell Berry, of course, uh, Crystal Wilkinson, Bell Hooks, and Frank X. Walker. I would really encourage anyone interested to look into those authors and read their work. Well, thank you so much. Our conversation today has been with author Farah Alexander. We appreciate your joining us as we explore more solutions to violence. Thank you once again for sharing your time and experience with our, our listeners here on Forward Radio. So folks, you are listening to Solutions to Violence. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. We air Solutions to Violence on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. The Solutions to Violence will air again August 9th and 10th. This program featuring Vera Alexander will be placed in our archives August 10th, 2022. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Vera Alexander. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Vera Alexander, Alexander you can reach us with the following email address, solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. All of us are wishing you and yours wellness, safety, and peace. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thanks for listening.